Hello and welcome to the Barton Legal Podcast. I'm Bill Barton, a solicitor who lives and breathes construction and engineering law. At Barton Legal, we help clients in the UK and around the world on everything from litigation and arbitration to drafting and negotiating contracts. And in this podcast, we unpack the latest legal trends and problems facing the industry, providing you with straight-talking insights to help break down these complex legal questions. So, let's get on with today's episode. Hi, I'm going to be talking about good faith in NEC contracts and a bit of information generally about good faith. Whilst originally seen as another UK-based contract, NEC is now very much an international form that rivals FIDIC in its international reach. The principle of good faith is a concept that has not been incorporated into English law. However, in an effort to increase the cooperation of all parties, NEC 3 and NEC 4 do actually imply the principle by inserting a clear obligation in Clause 10. Although the specific wording good faith is not used within either contract, it is clear that this clause does indeed amount to a good faith obligation. So, how is good faith incorporated into NEC? Well, the requirement for the parties to act in a spirit of mutual trust and cooperation was first implemented into the NEC 3 series of contracts following the Latham Report back in 1994, which stated at paragraph 518 of the report that the most effective form of contract in modern conditions should include a specific duty for all parties to deal fairly with each other and with their subcontractors, specialists and suppliers in an atmosphere of mutual cooperation. So you can see where it's come from. NEC Engineering Construction Contract states at Clause 10.1 the employer, the contractor, the project manager and the supervisor shall act as stated in this contract and in a spirit of mutual trust and cooperation. So you can see it's fairly lifted from the Latham report. The clause creates the obligation of the employer, contract and project manager and supervisor to perform all their duties and actions under the contract. It's the only clause which uses the future tense and incorporates an ongoing duty throughout the performance of the contract, implying a duty and obligation of good faith between the parties. So, how is that demonstrated? Well, in the case of NIHE and HBE in 2014, it's actually a Northern Ireland case, that was relating to a dispute that arose out of the provision of an asbestos surveying service in relation to properties belonging to the Northern Ireland executive who was seeking a declaration that the adjudicator's decision was wrong in law. Well, in looking at clause 61.1 of the contract, the time bar clause, and in particular whether this was an obligation that the employer had to notify to the contractor, the judge in that case held that Applying Clause 10.1 to the language of 61.1, the employer, at the time of giving what is admitted to be an instruction, was bound to give a written notification of the compensation event which arose from the fact 
that was an instruction which in fact changed the scope of works. In this case, the employer did not give the notification, but having regard to its obligations under Clause 10.1, it should have done. Thus, we can see an example of how the NEC contracts imposes good faith and can be imported into other language of other obligations in the contract. Further, this dispute concerned a dispute in relation to the proper interpretation and there were similar facts in a subsequent case where the plaintiff awarded the defendant two asbestos contracts in December 2012 in Belfast. The plaintiff issued an instruction altering the scope of works triggering a compensation event and in assessing the costs of the compensation event a dispute arose as to the sum due and the disclosure of documents showing the actual costs. So an argument was put forward that the consultant contractor couldn't rely solely on a forecast in their assessment and documents showing actual costs should be disclosed due to their obvious relevance in completing the assessment of compensation costs. So it's a case of do you look at what was projected or do you look at actual? And the judge held that First of all, it is a cardinal principle of contractual interpretation that one should look at the agreement overall. The particular contract begins with the agreement that the employer and the consultant shall act in the spirit of mutual trust and cooperation at Clause 10.1. It seems to me that a refusal by the consultant to hand over his actual timesheets and records for work he did during the contract is entirely antipathetic to a spirit of mutual trust and cooperation. There are further clauses in the contract such as clause 15 which reinforce that spirit. I find that the overall sense of the contract with its emphasis also on the assessment of compensation events is strongly against the defendant here. So the resulting judgment was simply an order that the documents showing actual costs should be disclosed. So these judgments demonstrate how the obligation to act in good faith conferred by Clause 10 influences the manner in which the whole of these NEC contracts should be construed and in fact are construed by the court. The principle of good faith therefore represents a freestanding obligation which is also to be considered in conjunction with other obligations. And, I mean, it's fair to say that there's no reason why NEC 4 should be treated any differently from NEC 3 because the wording is identical. But what does good faith mean as a freestanding obligation, you know, if you're not using NEC? Well, in establishing what good faith means as a freestanding obligation, attention is drawn to two cases that they're not under NEC but they do demonstrate the nature of the principle of good faith within different contracts and the obligations that they impose on contracting parties. So the first case is CPC Group Limited versus Qatari Dia Real Estate and was back in 2010 where it summarised the obligations in an express duty to adhere to the spirit of the contract to observe reasonable commercial standards of fair dealing, to be faithful to the agreed common purpose 
and to act consistently with the justified expectations of the other party. So that's a pretty rounding endorsement of a good faith. Then in the case of Unwin and Bond from 2020, a much more recent case, there was an express duty described as imposing the following minimum standards on a party. And these were to act honestly. It's interesting that that's something that the, the courts say. To be faithful to the parties, agreed common purpose as derived from the agreement, not to use powers for an ulterior purpose, to deal fairly and openly with the other party, and to consider and take into account their own interests while having regard also for the other party's interests. So these are, are things that the courts have now said are minimum standards when looking at a contract. And then you have a recent case from 2022 of Cetera Insurance that related to an invoice that had been disputed. And the Court of Appeal in that case stated, If no one acted in bad faith, I do not consider that in these circumstances there can have been a breach of the obligations to dispute invoices in good faith. It is clear that the judge found that CISGIL acted fairly and honestly towards IBM and did not conduct itself in a way which was calculated to frustrate the purpose of the contract or act in a way that was commercially unacceptable. There was no intentional or objectively reprehensible conduct. In these circumstances, I conclude that there is no room for a good faith challenge. So the court rejected one party saying that there hadn't been good faith. And what that case does is suggest a dilution of applicability of good faith in a more general sense compared to extended application from clause 10 across NEC contract. However, overall it seems that whilst the principle of good faith has been established to operate as a continuing obligation within the performance of a contract, most notably NEC 4, the qualification in terms of a breach is a matter for the discretion of a relevant authority in their consideration of the balance of factors. So we go back to Unwin and Bond. So the court is reluctant to specifically say we are going to have a new principle of good faith. But let's just quickly go back over. So you're meant to operate a contract whereby each party acts honestly. Is that really so surprising and out of, out of step with what you would expect? The courts expect the parties to be faithful to the agreed common purpose. So what was the intention of both parties when entering into the contract and what did they expect each party to do? Well, first of all, you expect the parties to comply with their respective um, terms and obligations in the contract. Then the court said not to use powers for an ulterior motive. So that's complying with the contract, but perhaps for example, not using termination provisions because you've realised that actually you just want to get rid of a contractor because you've found a cheaper option and therefore you create circumstances where, well, you, you've created 
in, if you like, a false termination, even though you are using the contractual terms. And then they said you must deal fairly and openly with the other party. And you must consider and take into account your interest and the other parties. So, whilst there may not as yet be a clear and specific duty of good faith, it is increasingly becoming something that is included as an express provision in contracts, requiring parties to deal with each other in good faith and to discuss and negotiate in good faith. So when you're drafting a contract, you need to be very careful about defining what the contractual difficulties are and how you're going to deal with them. It was also sensible to be specific so that where an employer insists on a power to terminate for cumulative defaults, what will constitute using those unfairly or excessive default? And what protection are you offering to the contractor to protect them from an employer putting together condensing defaults and saying that those amount to a right to terminate. As a contractor, it's very important to resist the temptation to enter into a tit-for-tat argument or dispute where each party takes action without a great deal of pre-thought or planning. On the contrary, if you're a contractor, it's important to lay an audit trail demonstrating that you have done everything you can to meet the employee's concerns. What you're trying to to show is, is there genuinely a problem in the design or work or progress? Is this a problem that is more correctly passed down to a subcontractor? Equally, if there is a lender and there's a possibility of step-in, is this something where a lender should be speaking to the employer developer to ensure that they act fairly and that they apply the contractual terms in a fair way. Where a dispute arises, you need to explore your options. I'd always advise parties not to behave irrationally. Ultimately, courts want parties to comply with their terms and conditions, and you have seen that there is no specific duty of good faith Although, as in the case of Unwin, they will look at certain specific questions to interpret the behaviour of parties. So the common law has grudgingly moved towards the development of a loose implied term of good faith, not to exercise contractual power arbitrarily, capriciously or irrationally or for an improper purpose. But this is still fairly limited. And this is best shown, perhaps, in the case of Compass Group and Mid-Essex National Health Service Trust, which confined an express good faith clause in the project agreement to the specific situation it addressed. So that's in contrast to Clause 10.1 in NEC, where we've seen that it's been used and imposed more widely in the interpretation of the entire contract. The court held that this did not cover making of deductions and awarding service failure points for underperformance, even though that gave rise to a right to termination. The implied duty of good faith was inapplicable to the exercise of an absolute contractual right 
where the court held that it was fair for an assessment to be made. The only remedy available was under specific performance provisions in the contract and the court was reluctant to impose a general duty of good faith. So the takeaway is look at your contract and consider how it's going to be applied. Think of the unwin guidance and make sure that you have acted honestly and faithfully to the purpose of the terms and conditions and that you haven't used the powers or that the other party haven't used them for ulterior purpose. And I think as long as you deal fairly and openly, then it is unlikely that you'll fall foul either of an express or implied duty of good faith. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining me for today's Barton Legal Podcast. Please make sure you follow the show in your podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they're released. We'll be tackling another important topic in this month's Barton Legal webinar, and you can register for free and watch back our previous webinars at bartonlegal.com. Why don't you connect with me on LinkedIn and follow Barton Legal to keep up to date with all the legal trends and news. I look forward to speaking to you again in the next Barton Legal podcast.